Proverbs chapter 3, and we're looking at the topic this morning of discipline. Discipline in the home. We've covered uh, parenting from Proverbs, and we started with the fear of the Lord, how to instill the fear of the Lord in your home. And then last week we talked about uh, what is the core curriculum from Proverbs. How, what should we be teaching in our homes? What does that look like and how do we teach and model um, biblical, a biblical worldview with gospel centrality from Scripture? And this morning we round out uh, the Proverbs parenting section uh, with a message on, on discipline. On discipline. Just what you were looking forward to, right? Some of you say, well, I disciplined my kid uh, just as we were pulling in uh, this morning. Uh, we had a little discipline se- session right there. Well, hopefully, uh, by the end of our time here, you will have an accurate picture of what the Bible says about how to discipline and how not to discipline. How to do it in a godly, biblical way, and how not to do it. What ways to avoid my hope and prayer that this would be practical and that this would be redemptive and life-giving. So let's pray to that end. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that uh, it is a reliable guide to faith and to life. We thank you that as we put your word into practice, uh, you promise that we will be like a person who builds their house on a firm foundation, that when the storms of life crash and when uh, everything around us feels chaotic, uh, that that in our lives we who have applied your word will be like the man or woman who builds their house on the application of your word. We pray that that would be true of us so that we may be a faithful representation of you, Lord, and that we might be light and salt in this world. We thank you for your word today. We pray that you would use it to transform our hearts and to make us more and more like you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's read through a few of these Proverbs as it comes to discipline. And, and I provided a, a listening guide. Uh, that way you don't feel the need to write down every single verse that I'll refer to. And just so you know, I won't refer to every single verse in your listening guide. You're welcome. Uh, that's for your uh, benefit. And if you did not get one of those, um, I have a few more um, in the office and would be more than happy to print one off. Did anybody not get a listening guide that needs one? couple people. Hey, Grayson, will you run to the office? On the printer, there should be maybe 10 or 15 more listening guides. Thank you. All right. We'll pass those out. When you see Grayson coming back by, he'll, he'll give you one. Let's read Proverbs chapter 3, verses 11 through 12. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves, as a father, the son in whom he delights. Now turn over with me to Proverbs chapter 12, verse 1. Proverbs 12, verse 1. Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof is stupid. Reproof is just an Old Testament word for correction or discipline or rebuke. Proverbs 13.1 A wise son hears his father's instruction, but a scoffer does not listen to rebuke. Here in the same chapter, Proverbs 13.24 Whoever spares the rod hates his son, 
he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. And then turn over to Proverbs 15.5. Proverbs 15.5, A fool despises his father's instruction, but whoever heeds reproof is prudent. And then there are a few New Testament passages, and I'll just be honest with you, uh, with today's message, uh, it was not hard to come up with biblical material. I, I had to cut dozens and dozens and dozens of verses. The Bible, some, some topics you have to search diligently through, like what happened to the dinosaurs, or you know, uh, um, where did Cain get his wife, or uh, you know, um, aliens. You know, those kind of things. You have to search really hard and you have to make leaps. Listen, it's never the things in Scripture um, that are mysterious that we have a hard time dealing with. It's usually the very things that are very plain and obvious. And, and discipline within the household is such a clear biblical teaching that I had to cut dozens and dozens and dozens of passages. And I want to set today's um, message up in a couple of ways, so just give me a minute. Uh, dear friends of ours, uh, mentors for Julie and I, a woman named Liz, um, her husband Craig married us. She used to tell the story of growing up in a neighborhood in West Texas, and uh, there was a group of kids that she would ride bikes with as a five, six, seven-year-old, and all of those kids at a certain time, the streetlights would come on. How many of you were raised in the 80s? The streetlights come on. That's your international sign to go home, right? So parents would yell or whistle or something, but the streetlight was the, the number one sign. Uh, and each of these kids, when the streetlights would come on, they would say, I have to go home. My parents want me to go home. Or, or they would ride to a boundary and they would stop and they would say, my parents said, this is the boundary line. I cannot go any further. This is where my parents allow me to go. And during Liz's childhood days, she had no such boundaries, and she had no curfews, and her parents did not enforce any of those things. And so Liz recognized in her friends' lives that this was a sign of love and a sign of protection. And so she often lied and said, well, me too. You know, my parents told me that this is my boundary line. I can't go past here. Or my parents told me that uh, this is my curfew. And, and, and oftentimes she would go home and her parents wouldn't know she was there or not. And, and so she remembers longing for boundaries and for discipline as a sign of love. And I say that story right up front because I don't want you to walk away from this message and say, oh, he's, he's promoting child abuse. Right? This is, he's going to talk about spanking and the rod of discipline drives away folly and, and he's promoting some sort of a, a religious, repressed, violent way of dealing with children. I, I don't want you to hear that at all. And if you do, you're misquoting me and you're missing the point of the message. Discipline equals love. Discipline equals godliness. Our first nature as sinners, right out of the womb, is to be rebellious, independent, and self-willed. Strong, self-willed, independent, and rebellious. Consider the fall of Satan. and We have uh, hints of it in Isaiah 14 and, and Ezekiel. 
Uh, consider the Israelites rescued from slavery in Egypt, delivered through the waters of the Red Sea into the Lord's loving leadership, cloud by day, fire by night, the full provision of manna and water and statutes, rules, laws, leaders. But they were repeatedly stiff-necked and rebellious, refusing to submit to the authority that God had placed over them and Moses and those elders. All of our rebellious independence is not an aspect or a trait or a characteristic of our Creator, but it is an aspect or a trait of the fall. So consider that when God gives Christian parents, little sinners, who have independent, sinful, disobedient tendencies, and they don't enforce God's authority over those children, but they leave them to themselves to figure it out in their own ways. It goes against the very nature of our sinful independence and willfulness. We see it clearly, and we see it in other people. But we tend to have blind spots in our own lives, don't we? We we, we tend to give ourselves a pass. This law or this rule applies to everybody else, but but it's okay if if I break this rule. Let's say you're the manager of a restaurant. You have a dozen employees, cooks, and servers. And, and it is a hard and fast rule in your restaurant that if you visit the restroom, you got to wash your hands before you come out. Let's say that among your staff, you have five independent, willful, stubborn people who say that rule applies to everybody else, but not me. Right? Not only will I go to the restroom and not wash my hands, I'll just do it over and over again. I'll touch the floor, and then I'll touch the food, and I'll just keep doing it. I'll, I'll bring your glass out and touch the rim, right, where you're going to, I'll put it down on your plate. I'll touch your fork, and, right? How long would you eat at that restaurant? You would complain to the manager, and you would say, I, I'm not eating here. Matter of fact, last time I ate here, I got sick, and I, the way I watched the cleanliness here, and he says, listen, those rules, that authoritarian idea, that does not apply here, Right? These people are exercising their autonomy and their independence, and I support them. How many of you would visit that restaurant often? None of us would. None of us would. A life without rules, a life without authority, is a chaotic, satanic world. Now imagine you're reinforcing disobedience in your home as a Christian parent, and you're giving that little precious sinner, all the choices and options, reinforcing willfulness rather than obedience and submission to godly authority. And then you're sending that one out into the world as a representative of Christ and your family, and they end up being lawless, willful, selfish individuals. How long do you think that will last? Listen, they will get into a world that not only operates on authority, but demands obedience break laws, you go to jail. Be independent and willful and you will lose relationships with friends and with others. Have you ever had a teammate or a co-worker that is constantly looking out for themselves and refuses to cooperate or participate under authority? Have you ever watched or participated in sports and one person says, I run my own plays. I don't care what the coach calls. I do what I want to do and everybody else is in Uh, in unison, operating, running by the playbook and and the individual, what do you think happens to that person? 
They don't last long. The world will chew them up and spit them out if you send out into the world rebellious, willful, independent children. You understand what I mean by that, I hope. Independence in some ways is not a bad thing at all. But there is a sense in which you have to train your children that they are born into a world of authority. Now the reality of a sermon on this topic is that some of you can't wait to spank a kid. Like You're just chomping at the bit. You're eager. You wish you had a kid right now that you could just spank. Right? This is, you're so excited about this. Listen, you need to simmer down a little bit. Um, you might need to dwell on passages like Ephesians 6 and Colossians 4 that parents don't provoke your children to anger and bring them up in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Others of you are so opposed to spanking that you just hate this message already. You might have even thought about skipping. Uh, maybe you would much rather be somewhere else than here right now. Many young parents in our culture today resist this message. And if that's you, you might even already disagree. You might are even uh, already convinced that your method of correction and discipline is better than the one clearly prescribed here in the Bible. But let me ask you to kindly, if that's you, put down your guard and sincerely consider this. If this were any other topic, you would explore Scripture. You would say, what does the Bible say? And you would, you would make a catalog of all the verses. How, does, how am I supposed to do, operate this financially? How am I supposed to operate morally? How am I supposed to operate at work? You would, how am I supposed to operate with my words? You would build a theology, a biblical theology of how you're supposed to operate. But for some reason, when it comes to this topic, we resemble Judges 21-25 more than any other book in the Bible. Judges 21-25 says, in those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone just did whatever they saw fit. For some reason, we operate like this as parents, as though the Bible has nothing to say about the way we raise our children. We should not operate as though the Bible were not true on this topic. If, matter of fact, if you were counseling a new believer and they said, what does the Bible say about parenting and disciplining my child? Would you water down Scripture? Would you ignore all these verses? Would you make excuses? Well, it was a different time and a different culture and, and they didn't understand pop psychology and a child's self-esteem the way we do today. What would you do? You would say the rod of discipline was symbolic and God never meant for us to discipline our children in physical ways. We've come farther in our understanding of child psychology and child rearing. Listen, this is the exegetical point of the sermon. If it had to be summed up in one sentence, it is this. The Bible clearly teaches that parents should love their children well by using physical discipline for correction. I may not even be comfortable with all that, but I'm presenting to you what the Bible says without compromise, without watering it down. There is no way you can read the Bible and not see that clearly. I've provided for you four pages of Scripture. You, a second point for today's sermon is that if you do it well and if you do it right, if you discipline scripturally and biblically, 
you lay a better foundation for the gospel message when you discipline your child using that biblical method of discipline. Paul Trent points out that you are parenting self-appointed, self-sovereigns who want to rule their lives in the way that they think is best. And that never goes anywhere good. He says it's not loving to allow your child to exercise individual authority in areas where they are clearly not capable. That's not love. So let's get into some of the main points of the message here and we'll distill uh, some of the, the passages so that we can better understand it. But I think we have to start with the origins of the anti-authoritarian attitude. Maintaining an attitude of willful independence or anti an anti-authoritarian attitude is quality or characteristic of Satan and our fallen condition, not Christ-likeness. In Genesis chapter 3, verses 4 through 7, you know the story. The serpent comes to Eve and he tempts them. He says, Did God really say, right, undercutting God's authority? Did God really say this? No, I didn't say it this way. What he knows is that if you eat of this fruit, you're not going to die. You're actually going to live and you're going to be more like God, knowing good and evil. So immediately, Satan introduces rebellion lawlessness and undercuts God's authority immediately in the garden. And that's where sin begins. With the undercutting of God's authority. Where does that willfulness and rebellion come from? We see in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 a hint of satanic background. In Isaiah 14 we read that how you have fallen from heaven, O day star son of the dawn. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high, and I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. All of this began in Satan's own heart, somewhere in eternity past, where he set his sights on being like God, undercutting all of God's authority. We see it again in Ezekiel 28. These passages hint at the fall. It says in Ezekiel 28, 13, you don't have to turn here. Um, it says that, uh, Thus says the Lord God, you were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect and beauty. You were in Eden, in the Garden of Eden, in the Garden of God. You were covered in all these precious jewels. One day uh, that you were created, on the day that you were prepared, you were anointed a guardian cherub. It says, I placed you on the holy mountain of God in the midst of the stones of fire you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. And then he says, your heart was proud because of your beauty and you corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. Therefore, I cast you to the ground, exposing you before kings. All these things hint at the pride that says, I can be like God on my own and I undercut His authority. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says that in this case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Jesus said in Luke 10.18, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. All these things indicate that the thing that caused Satan to be cast out and into this world for its corruption is the undercutting of God's authority 
and the exaltation of himself. The rejection of authority and lawlessness and the exaltation of self is satanic. You might say, come on, Gibson, satanic? That's a little... You're just trying to use some like inflammatory word. You just It's like a hot topic kind of a thing. You're trying to get a hot take here. Maybe it's sinful and foolish, but satanic? Listen, and you can even turn here and verify with me. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3-12. through 12. I, I don't remember if I included it in your listening guide. But in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3-12, through 12, Paul is warning the Thessalonians. And he's talking about the end times. And he says, Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Does that sound familiar? Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And, and you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. There's coming a time when this man of lawlessness, this ultimate rebel, will be revealed. Verse 7, For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders. That's verse 9. And with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore God will send them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that they may all be condemned who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in unrighteousness. Look at some of the key words of that passage. Rebellion, lawlessness, destruction, Opposition, exalting themselves, and a proclamation to be God. This sort of self-authority is bound up in the heart of a child from the womb. And it has its roots in Satan himself. The message of Satan says clearly, I don't need God. I can do it myself. The message of Satan is, if you eat the fruit, you will be like God and you... You'll have no need of Him. As a matter of fact, the last possible shred of your sinful flesh that keeps you from receiving the Gospel is the prideful attitude that says, I don't need Jesus. I will not submit to Him. I won't give Him control of my life. I will maintain control. I can do a better job of running my life than He can. Now contrast that with the attitude of Jesus. In Luke 2, 49-52, He's lost in the temple. His parents come back and they find Him. Uh, they say, why are you looking for Me? Jesus said, did you not know that I must be in My Father's house? And they didn't understand uh, um, the, the saying that He spoke to them. And then in verse 51 it says, He went down with them and He came to Nazareth and Jesus was submissive to them. Jesus the Word by which everything was created, the Word made flesh, 
yielded himself and submitted to Joseph and Mary, sinful parents, gladly obeying them. Think about Philippians 2. Have this mind among yourselves that is yours in Christ Jesus, that even though Jesus was in the form of God, He did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but He emptied Himself, took the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. In the life of Jesus, you see an anti-satanic attitude. He humbled Himself, submitted Himself to His parents, sinners, to the authority and the government of Israel, as corrupt as it was, to the authority of the government of Rome, as corrupt as it was, even to the crucifixion under a Roman ruler named Pontius Pilate. Jesus demonstrated full submission, even to the point of in the Garden of Gethsemane, holding the cup, saying, I don't want to die, but if it's your will, I'll drink this cup in full submission and obedience to the Father. Paul Tripp says it's very important for your child to know that they are born into a world of authority. He says that God makes His invisible authority visible in the life of a child by sending parents of authority to represent His authority over children who need authority. Did you hear that? God makes His invisible authority visible in the life of children by sending parents of authority to represent His authority over children who need authority. Now that ratchets up the need for us to discipline well. It it ratchets up our opportunity to shape and drive out the foolishness and folly and bad character of children through godly authority. And let me just counsel you. You should fight these authority battles young. A willful, rebellious two-year-old doesn't get better as a 12-year-old. And you think, well, my kid's fine. He obeys me all the time. But listen, they may do well for you, but what happens when you drop that child off, child care, daycare, a friend's house, a school, VBS, right? If you're not instilling this in them young, it's harder to start loose and tighten up later. Now, there, are, there are a number of um, older parents who know this for a fact, who have seen how difficult it is to give a two-year-old freedom and then to try to tighten up later in life. You've got to fight these battles early. I have permission to share this story that is a legend in the Largent household. Little Ellie, sweet Ellie, as a four-year-old, does something to Kennedy. I don't know, she pulls her hair or does something that in some way she clearly violates a rule. And we say, Ellie, you need to apologize to Kennedy. No. Just would not do it. Fifteen minutes we're in this battle. And, and we've, this isn't the first battle. We've battled many times. But there is a willful kid. And Julie and I are on the same page. Hey, we're huddling in the back room. We've got to win, right? We've got to, we can't let this go on. This is a godly thing. This is a disciplined thing. We've got to, we've got to help take this willfulness 
and, and put it in a good direction. And, and, and she's the strong-willed one. So she refuses. I, I will not apologize. We sit her in a corner. You sit there. Think about this, right? Ten minutes or whatever. Now are you ready to obey? You ready to, to apologize? No. This goes on for 15 minutes. We take away things. Finally, after 40 or so minutes, we get to the point of, if you don't obey, we're going to bring out Mr. Pop, right? Mr. Pop was a spoon that we kept in the every room of the house. We probably had a Mr. Pop. Somehow they kept disappearing. I don't know. We find them under beds and in cabinets, but, but Mr. Pop was our language of uh, you know discipline when it got to that point. And and Ellie gets to this point where we say, "Do you want pops, or are you going to apologize?" And she yells at the top of her lungs, "Give me pops! Give me pops! Give me pops!" <laughs> to this day, we we'll just say, "Give me pops." And it, our, our family loves that story. Um, she would rather choose the pain of discipline and having her own way than, than simply uh, adjusting her character uh, and, and apologizing to Kennedy. What was clearly the right thing to do. But I'll tell you the beautiful thing is, is at the end of that hour, that battle was one. It's almost like it was the last stand of her willful independence. But after that, she became soft. She apologized to Kennedy. She enjoyed all the benefits of full restoration. And, and that was the last real battle in Ellie's childhood. There was a point, I think we, don't, I think we had to bring out Mr. Pop for years, but it became a stand that Julie and I said, this, is, this authority has to be demonstrated that thing's going to roll over on me. Um, in this way, we have to teach our children to understand that they're born into a world of authority. They're born into a world of authority. And you have to fight these battles young. We're going to pick up some speed here, but it was important that you understood all of those sort of underlying principles. So let's get into some of the practicalities of how, when, why, where, how do we do this? The why is, I can just give you three reasons. It's a biblical command. The why is just simply God commands it. Proverbs 29, 17. Discipline your, your son and he will give you rest. He will give delight to your heart. The rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. Proverbs 29, 15 through 17. Why? God, God commands it of us. A second reason why, God models it. He models it. Proverbs 3, 11 through 12, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of His reproof, for the Lord disciplines those whom He loves. You, you know that sounds just like Hebrews. Hebrews 12, 4 through 11, He says, um, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when He corrects you, for the Lord disciplines the one He loves and chastises every son whom He receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Listen, Hebrews 12, 4-11 says that God's discipline is one of the highest forms of His affection for you. I used to have a high school football coach 
And he would say, among other things, in colorful language, right, largely go find the band building. And I had to run two miles to the band building if I was doing something wrong. Or, but there was a point in time when he said, if I'm not in your face yelling at you, it's because I've written you off. I have no more use for you, and you will be on the bench, third string. You'll never see the field. But don't get angry when I'm trying to coach you up. It's because I see potential in you, and that's that form of discipline that he cared about me, wanted me to be better, and that's an illustration of what Hebrews 12, 4 through 11 says. He says, if you're left without discipline, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. One of the greatest ways you can know that you're a child of God is if you receive discipline from the Lord. He said, besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? They disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but He disciplines us for our good that we may share His holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. First reason, God commands it. Second reason, God models it. Third reason, it's loving. It's loving. Proverbs 29, 15-17 The rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. Verse 17, discipline your son and he will give you rest. He will give delight to your heart. It's the most loving thing you can do. You are parenting self-appointed, self-sovereigns who want to rule their lives in the way they think is best and that never goes anywhere good. It's not loving to allow your child to exercise individual authority in areas where they are clearly not capable. That's not love. That's the Paul Tripp quote again. And in the video that I published over the past few weeks uh, from him that we have permission to share among our congregation, I think it's in your listening guide as well, He goes on to say that the battles about food with your three-year-old, your four-year-old are not about food. It's not like they've read diet books and they understand what their body needs. It's not like they understand their sleep cycle and, and they understand it better than you. All those little battles along the way are opportunities where they're testing your authority. And every time you let them have their way, you're reinforcing that independent willfulness Let me get into a couple of things here. How not to discipline your children. Ephesians 6 says, Do not provoke your children to anger. Colossians echoes that same sentiment. There is a way in which you can exercise discipline that is a misrepresentation of God and a misrepresentation of your authority as parents. You don't have the right to exercise authority any way that you want. You don't have independent authority you have ambassadorial authority. Another point from that Paul Tripp seminar. It's not selfish authority. It's not bring me the thing that's five feet away because I said so. It's not treating your children like indentured servants and if they disobey in contribution to your own laziness. We've all had parents that discipline us wrongly. And we never say, I'm so grateful for this. I'm so, so glad that they're screaming at me so close that I can smell their breath. and I can remember um, that sound of a leather belt being um, ripped through belt loops and 
running around the house trying to avoid that. I never thought I should just stop and just take this, not from Christian parents or anything like that, but just just being disciplined in the wrong way does not in any way help your child. You should not discipline them in an ungodly way. Not in anger. Not in selfishness. Not for prideful purposes. Sometimes parents will enforce something publicly that they never enforce privately as a reflection of who they are in public rather than for the good uh, and the character building of a child. Not inconsistently. Sometimes this rule applies, but sometimes it doesn't. Applying an inconsistent amount of discipline introduces confusion. Not violently. The Old Testament law says lex talionis. That's the Latin meaning for eye for eye. Eye for eye was a a law of mercy. Meaning you can't abuse somebody more or punish somebody more than what their crime is. What's fitting to the crime? Lex talionis was a restraining force where the avenger says, I'm going to do to you even more than what you did to me. This was a restraining law in the life of Israel. Never exercise emotion that makes a child doubt your love for them. It's anti-God. You can discipline your child in a way that says, I reject you at this moment. Tripp says, I've heard Christian parents say, I don't really like you right now. How does that ever go anywhere good? I don't want to be around you anymore. You've, you've made me so angry that I just, I just need a break from you. All those things do not reflect the reality of a good God. Never exercise discipline in an ungodly way. And when you do, seek forgiveness. I've had to go to my kids on numerous occasions. I blew it right there. I blew it and I did not do this right and I need you to forgive me. And I I want you to know I I, I shouldn't have said that word or I shouldn't have uh, been angry or I shouldn't have disciplined you in this way. Listen, that grace is there for, uh, for, for us to... You know, patch up where we've messed up. Ask forgiveness. Confess. Paul Tripp says, I don't think this is always true, but I understand why some children raised in Christian homes can't wait to leave the home because of the angry, selfish, emotional, and spiritually abusive way authority had been exercised in their lives. Many of you have scars because of the way your parents disciplined you and it didn't drive you to God. It drove you away from Him. I just want, maybe this is a moment of healing for you, that if you were disciplined in that way, I just want you to know that it, it was not, that did not have God's approval no matter how many Bible verses they quoted to you. If a person abused you in the name of Jesus, that does not represent the heart of the Father. If you're currently abusing a child in the name of Jesus in an inappropriate way, I want you to know that that does not represent the heart of the Father. The Bible has a lot to say about the way we discipline. And the world has ways in which in religious circles, many people have taken those verses and and used it as authority toward abusive ends. So let me give you some helpful guidelines 
on how to discipline children. Every time you exercise authority, it should be a beautiful picture of the authority and love of God. Let me say that again. Every time you exercise authority, it should be a beautiful picture of the love and authority of God. What a great filter to start with. This is a gospel moment. We have no independent authority to discipline in any way we choose. We have ambassadorial authority in that God has given us authority over the children that He has made in His image. And it is under His guidelines that we should exercise discipline in a way that points them to Christ and not from Him. Discipline under control, not as an emotional reaction. I'll, I, I, very, I don't do things right, and so I don't want to be the preacher who every time he needs a good story points to himself, right? But Julie, maybe this is her influence, but in our home, we always tried to wait for discipline. Somebody did something wrong, hey, tonight we're going to have a conversation about this. Tonight or later, uh, we're going to have to give you a pop. Mr. Pop's going to have to come out. But it was never... It was never running around the house in the heat of the moment, just willy-nilly whipping kids with a spoon, right? That, that was not a part of the discipline that we had. The conversations were under control, and they usually looked a little bit like Pat kick Pat. Hey, we love you, right? That's the Pat. We love you. We're your parents. God has given us you, as, and it's our role to raise you in a way, and we, we love you, and, and, and yet we can't tolerate sinful, bad behavior that, that is not... Um, build good character it's not a responsibility and so we're going to have to give you you know three pops here and we would you know we would do that and then we would affirm them and hug them and and just tell them hey it's it's not because we don't love you that we're doing this it's because that behavior is sinful and ungodly and it's our responsibility to discipline listen that sort of under control pointing to the gospel is exercising discipline in a completely different way than you would find with an emotional reaction and, and a heavy hand. Discipline should be corrective. Discipline should be corrective. It shouldn't be you're a terrible kid. It should be that behavior is sinful. That behavior is sinful. And this um, discipline that you're about to receive, it's to cor- correct that behavior. I can't send you into the world. I can't send you into VBS. I can't send you into Sunday school if you're going to spit on the teacher or if you're going to, you know, if you're going to run around and pull every kid's hair, right? Those, those behaviors are wrong and sinful and they don't respect, you know, the preciousness of others is what uh, another mentor family of ours used to say. Discipline is redemptive and corrective. Discipline should reinforce love because the principle is this. Sin and disobedience is painful and it hurts. Jesus endured the cross. It was painful. It hurt. It was punishment. And He endured it for us. When we discipline, the Bible says that you should use something. I have an entire page of notes on the rod, right? It's on the back of one of your pages there. The word rod means um, the word Shabbat is the Hebrew word. It means rod. It's used 62 times in the Old Testament, and it indicates a thin stick or a switch. When I went to Arkansas for college, all my friends would tell stories of having to go 
go get a switch. Right? Mom or dad, hey, go pull a switch. Did that happen here in Pennsylvania? Did anybody's parents say, go get a switch? Right? How horrible would that be? Go out to the, I would pick the, I mean, I would be an expert at picking the right switch with no flex, right? Uh, maybe a little broken so that by the time, you know, it catches, maybe it'll have some wind drag. I would be the best engineer when it came to the aerodynamics of a switch picking. But that was something that was very common in the South. Go, go find a switch. Go pick a switch out. This is the word for rod. It's not an axe. It's not an axe handle. It's not a paddle. It's not, it is, a, um, it is an implement um, that indicates a thin stick or a switch that can be used to give a small amount of physical pain, listen, with no lasting physical injuries. You're doing it wrong if there are slashes and bruises. That's not at all what the Bible is authorizing. You understand? I laugh so hard at times when Julie would have Mr. Pop and she would, she would get a good wind-up, right? And she would come in and decelerate to the point of just sort of, you know, the kids would brace themselves for it, and oh, that wasn't so bad at all. <laughs> that's that's a reality kind of in our home, but 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 the rod of discipline means a stick. I, listen, I'm just presenting to you what the Bible says. You you may be cringing in your seat right now, but it's my role as the pastor just to tell you what the Bible says without my opinion, without watering it down, without compromising it, and you've got a whole thing there. To show you. There's a modern day proverb, it's not in the Bible, but it says, spare the rod, spoil the child. And it means that if a parent refuses to discipline an unruly child, that child will grow accustomed to getting his own way. He will become in the common vernacular a spoiled brat. The saying comes from Proverbs 13, 24, he who spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is careful to discipline him. You can't remove the word rod from the Bible. If you wanted to, you couldn't black it out. You would have to black it out dozens of times. The Bible instructs parents to discipline their children in that way, in the right way. And discipline looks different for different ages. Zero to seven, totally different than eight to 18. Totally different than 19 to however old the kid in your basement is, right? Living there 28, 35. It all looks different. There are different stages. For little Kennedy, uh, at, at eight months, she knew the difference between yes and no. No, don't do that. She would look over at us and just look for the what she was, no, no. And she would get a thump on the finger. Just pull back and that just little amount of pain indicated disobedience brings pain. Disobedience brings pain. It wasn't abusive. It wasn't uh, violent. It wasn't. It was corrective. The disobedience brings pain. Listen, there are two negative responses to this message. At this point, you may have one of two really unhealthy reactions. Maybe you're thinking, I'm the worst parent out there. I've messed it up. My kids are going to be in prison by the time they're 16. I've already blown it. And, and you spend the rest of the week thinking about how you blew it how you failed or maybe you think your kids are out of the house and you've already blown it and it's already too late and and all those things another equally unhealthy reaction would be we're nailing this we've got this down 
Listen, we all have moments of failure and moments of success, but neither one defines the entirety of your parenting experience. You could be failing simultaneously with one child and succeeding with another. Your children could present perfectly obediently to you and become absolute nightmares the minute you drop them off to someone else. There needs to be grace, patience with one another and love toward one another in these reactions. I guess a third unhealthy reaction could be so-and-so really needs to hear this. I wish they were here, right? Oh, I wish that person... I'm going to forward them this link as soon as the, this is published this week. Listen, that's, that's not helpful either. Repeatedly spamming everyone who's not here. You need to hear... Yo, you, you definitely need to hear this. Listen, this is the, the, the conclusion of discipline scripturally. We see at the cross the crossroads, the place where divine wrath and perfect love come together in one one area, one geographic place on the planet, in the universe. Can you imagine all the divine wrath stored up against all the sin ever committed against a holy God? It all is potently concentrated. You ever taken a... uh, magnifying glass and you take just like the sun is about to magnify my forehead here you take it all concentrates in one spot creating intense heat and light the entire wrath of god for all the ages was magnified concentrated down into one point on the cross all the wrath for sin was poured out in discipline in that moment on that cross But at the same time, an equal amount of all of God's love and all of God's um, uh, affection for humanity, for the people he created, was also concentrated in that one place. The cross is the place where divine wrath and love meet perfectly. You see all the justice and holiness and righteousness of God at the cross. God had to punish sin. He couldn't wink at it. He couldn't sometimes enforce it and sometimes not. He couldn't do a countdown on one or two, three. If I get to five, if I get to 20, then that sin is going to be punished. He, He executed perfect righteous justice and wrath perfectly because sin had to be punished. But you also see the love of God at the cross and that God didn't send an angel or create some animal or some other inexpensive, cheap substitute to atone for sin. He sent Jesus Himself. He sent sent His own Son. And Scripture is clear to point out, this is My Son, My only Son, whom whom I love and whom I'm well pleased. You see that phrase over and over again, that God sent His, uh, His very heart. He paid the price with the, the highest price He could pay. And your child will have a much better understanding of the gospel if they know there is a punishment for sinful behavior. A child who knows punishment for sinful behavior has a much better read on the gospel message than one who doesn't. A child who has never experienced pain or godly punishment over sinful behaviors and attitudes will not fully understand or appreciate Jesus' substitutionary death. They just won't. 
that just won't. Ineffective discipline that just says, I'm going to count to 10 and you can, you know, if I get to 10 and then they don't actually, you know, it doesn't actually, the kid knows those boundaries. They know the limits. They know that they can get away with it and all they have to do is smile in a cute way and, and the parent is a pushover. How does that enforce godly punishment? And if, the, if Jesus takes away their punishment, they think, all I know of punishment is easy, manipulating. I can manipulate my parents so that there is no punishment. And so when you say Jesus took the punishment for us to a child who's never really experienced punishment, that message falls woefully short. But you take a child who's been disciplined in a biblical way, a way that points to the redemption at the cross, a way that demonstrates pain for disobedience, a way that enforces submission to godly authority, You take a child who's been disciplined in a redemptive way, a corrective way, a character-building way, a way that they feel loved in the long run because they know that discipline equals godly love. Who better to appreciate Jesus' substitutionary death on the cross? You tell that child, Jesus died to take your punishment. They'll, They'll go around the house and say, maybe Jesus can... Take Mr. Pot for me, right? Maybe, maybe Jesus can. I didn't like Mr. Pot, but but if I understand, Jesus took that punishment for me. He didn't deserve it, but he took it for me. By the time your child is seven, they should know two things: they absolutely must obey and live under authority. That's number one. The second thing they must know is that you absolutely, completely love them. Absolutely, completely love them. That points to the cross by the time a child is seven. The perfect love of God and the perfect justice of God for sin. Father, we thank you that you have not left us to read the latest fads in parenting magazines and and the latest pop psychology. You have given us clear instructions on how we should demonstrate your love and redemptive activity in the world. You have given us your invisible authority through the visible authorities around us. We thank you that you are, that you discipline us as a a result of your love for us. We pray that you would forgive us where we fail you as your representatives with the children that you have given us, the grandchildren, the grown children, the future children. Help us to get this right and to get it right early and to get it right often, more often than not. Forgive us for the times when we have disciplined as an abuse of your authority and disciplined in a violent way or an angry way or in a way that misrepresents who you are. We pray that you would help us to get this right so that we may release into the world children who grow into adults, who are fully submissive like Jesus, submissive to the will of God and the sovereignty of God in this world. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We want to invite you to stand.